Hi, everyone. Welcome to this edition of Roar Lions Radio. I'm your host, Bill DeFilippo. Uh, we're talking football today. Uh, basketball podcast will be coming a little bit later this week, uh, in which uh, thousands and thousands of angry hornets will come out of my mouth and just destroy my community. But until then, we're going to talk football. I'm joined by Nick Pollock. Nick, what's going on? You know, I just watched Penn State basketball lose to Indiana. I just watched the Avs give up a hat trick to Patrick Hornquist in about two and a half minutes. So. Could be better. Yeah, yeah. Did the did uh, the Avs get uh, fifteen free miss fifteen free throws at home and lose by two by chance? They didn't, thankfully. Oh, well, <laughs> it would be pretty crappy if a team did that, wouldn't it? Uh, it would. Yeah, Matt DeBear is also here. Matt, what's going on? Uh, much like Nick, I have watched Penn State basketball lose to Indiana, and I have watched the Columbus Blue Jackets blow a four-one lead. And they are now. They're still five minutes left in the game. They are currently losing nine to six mm. in, in, in a hockey game. Reverse at nice. the professional level. Well, uh, just pay Artemi Panarin or whatever his name is, and all is well. Uh, but you're not here to uh, listen to us talk about sports things that make us angry. You're here to talk. Hear us talk about the team that eh, only kind of makes us angry: the uh, 2018 Penn State Nittany Lions. Uh, the regular season uh, came to an end a few weeks ago when the Nittany Lions took on the Maryland Terrapins in Happy Valley 138-3. to We're not really going to talk about that game specifically uh, because that game happened like a week and a half ago. Uh, instead, we're just going to talk about the season as a whole, talk about various moments uh, from the season that stuck out to us in one way or another, uh, discuss the bowl matchup a little bit, and then we'll talk about a little recruiting, a little just general college football banter nonsense. Uh, I feel bad for, like, the message board commenters who wanted Penn State to, like, fire Ricky Ronnie and hire Cliff Kingsbury because that dream died today. But other than that, uh, let's talk about this Wait, team. Wait, I missed that. Where did he decide? Oh, he, he's going to USC, pal. Oh, oh, okay. So what everyone thought was going to happen. Okay, exactly. carry on. Yeah, so we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later, but that's going to be fun. Uh, regardless, let's uh, look at this Penn State team. Again, went 9-3 and three on the year. Losses to Ohio State by 1, Michigan by 4, Michigan State by 4, and Michigan State by an amount that is too much for my slow and simple brain to uh, put together. Uh, otherwise... A solid year for Penn State. I mean, there are no real uh, great wins, no real terrible losses, unless you want to look at the you know score line in that Michigan game. Uh, Nick, I kind of want to start with you. As you look back on this regular season, uh, going back to the game against Appalachian State, wrapping up the game against Maryland, did this team meet expectations for you? Did it fail to meet expectations for you? Where is it kind of on that spectrum? Well, I don't remember what I predicted record-wise before the year. If I had to guess, I'm assuming I probably said 10-2. and So in that regard, I guess slightly. Um, But really the only – I mean, yeah, they they could have won and should have won the Ohio State game. Um, But really the only loss that I'm really upset about would be the Michigan State one for obvious reasons. Um, But – I don't know, and it's it's I, it's kind of hard to put myself back in back in my own shoes from early in the season. I think myself, like like most of us, were probably underrating the inexperience issues a bit more, uh, a bit less than, or we were underrating them 
underrating them more, underrating them less. I've never used that phrase before. Not sure what the correct terminology yeah, well, is. Well, just like what are you trying to say? Well, I'm saying that I, I don't think we properly considered enough um, how inexperienced the team was going to be. So I think when you kind of look at it with that scope, it's it's hard to be too upset with the final record of the team. Um, yeah, it'd be great to be going to a New Year's Six game, but um, I mean, you can't. It, it's hard to be upset with, especially with what we saw from the defense, because the defense just grew so much. So I, I think in in terms of just expectations of player growth, I feel like I I feel like my expectations were pretty much met. I think all the young players did really an outstanding job for this team this year. It was really more of the upperclassmen that sort of let the team down. So I think overall, player development, I think they did meet my expectations. Record-wise, I think they fell just a little bit short. Uh, yeah, Matt, uh, same question to you. What do you think? Well, pretty much what Nick said. Um, I I talked myself into an 11-1 prediction when we did our post back in August. I think I was I was 10-2 for most of the summer. And... I guess in in the big picture, yeah, they I think they they fell a game short, and it's probably you know pick the Ohio State or the Michigan State game because both those games they really had one in the Michigan State game. There a handful of plays, the dropped interceptions that we all remember that just kind of gnaw at you. Um, but but even the Ohio State game, and I, I've had this thought a couple times in the in the week since then that the way the defense has grown since that game, you kind of wonder if you put this defense out there now against the Ohio state offense, same situation up 12 with eight minutes to play. Do they, do they make the play that they need to make down the stretch in that situation? And um, obviously that's, or can they tackle Benjamin Victor? Shut uh, up. He's, he's actually still running in case you're wondering. Um, but I, like Nick said, I think you look at, I think we, we underestimated the impact of the youth up the middle of the defense, especially at tackle and and linebacker. I, but I think you look at how those guys grew, especially um, Givens and Windsor up front, and they kind of figured things out at linebacker as the year went on. I think there's still the obvious limitations there. But from a an achievement standpoint, I think this team was certainly good enough to, to win 10 games in the regular season and go to a New Year's Six Bowl game. Um, I think in the big picture, they're probably not as good as Michigan or Ohio state, obviously Michigan. Um, and I think that Ohio state game as great as it was, it was a lot of trace McSorley being trace McSorley that, that had them in that game. Um, but so I, I guess they, they kind of ended up where you thought they would. Um, just that loss to a team that they, they are clearly better than and outplayed in a lot of ways against Michigan state that that's going to not you. Um, that has them in Orlando instead of you know Atlanta or, or the Fiesta Bowl or, or or somewhere a bit more uh, robust and, and and heralded, but um, it's a, a little of both, I guess, to answer the question. Yeah, I when I look at the season, I think I was also one of those eleven and one people. Uh, if memory serves, I said they were going to be. I said they were either going to lose to Ohio State or Michigan. I said one or the other. Um, and the thing that's so frustrating is that, like, we, you know, however many people said 11-1 or 10-2, like, this team very easily could have gone 11 Again, so if we're going by what we predicted at the beginning of the year, yeah, this I, I talked myself into, uh, you know, whether it was... 
I, I don't even want to talk about the defense because I think the defense, for the most part, was great this year. It had one game where it wasn't especially great in Appalachian State. Well, two games, that and Indiana, where it was just weirdly not good. Uh, and then for the most part, like it was, at the absolute worst, a very solid group. Where I think I talked myself into youth not being a big issue because there was so much talent was wide receiver. And I think the way that this season was a disappointment was that we all talked ourselves into one way or another, uh, myself included. I mean, if you want to go back and listen to old episodes of the podcast like and get receipts, go ahead. I thought the fact that they had Trace McSorley, who... You know, I'm going to hammer the drum that he was one. He is one of the best quarterbacks in college football. Even though this was by far his worst year statistically, I thought the fact that they had Trace McSorley was going to make life a little bit easier on them. It was going to make running the ball with a new running back a little bit easier. It was going to make throwing the ball with a bevy of new targets and really the one returning target in Juwan Johnson not be as big of a deal. Uh, that was absolutely the case with running it. Miles Sanders was fantastic this season. Uh, he's If he goes pro, I don't think any of us would be surprised because he's going to be... I, he has what it takes to be a good NFL running back. Trace was solid with his legs right up until his knee got injured. But the way that they struggled to throw the ball, uh, especially down the stretch, the big flaw in this team and the big way that it did not meet my expectations. The defense was great. Um, I think that the way that they were able to uh, get the most out of guys like Jan Johnson and Cam Brown uh, and Garrett Taylor and uh, yeah, those guys, and then even a guy like Robert Windsor, who they've been in the program for a while and they didn't really uh, make this is their first year making some kind of impact and they more or less got the best out of them. And even getting the most out of young dudes like Micah Parsons and Yitor Gross Matos. That was admirable. The issue came in throwing the football, where I, I, I trace his numbers. Let me read them right here 53.4% completion percentage, 16 touchdowns, six interceptions, 2,284 yards. That's not good. And I don't know how, I don't think you can put too terribly much of that on him. Like, there were plenty of times when he just missed throws, especially after his knee injury. Uh, but, Nick, I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on this. Like, for me, the biggest way that this team failed to live up to expectations was in its inability to throw the football. Yeah, and I, a lot of that, like you mentioned, comes back to the receivers. And the disappointing part is that it wasn't, really the fault of the younger guys in fact the younger guys are the ones that stepped up and made the passing game more successful as the year went on it was the inability of guys like Juwan Johnson and DeAndre Tompkins and Brandon Polk to consistently catch the football I mean for the season by by my count by what I considered a drop this team ended the year with 36 dropped passes that is an absurdly high number and if you uh, take that into account along with a few other things. Trace's adjusted completion percentage was 70.6%. So though the work of the receiving core really was just really subpar for a good part of the season. And that was largely what fueled McSorley's disappointing final season. And 
yeah, towards the end of the year, the injury played a big factor too because he wasn't really he wasn't as accurate. He wasn't driving off that back foot. But early in the year, the receiving core just really, really let him down. Um, on the flip side, of course, there were lots of bright spots there that bode well for the future. For Guys sure. like KJ Hamler and Jahan Dotson and Pat Fryermuth and uh, Cameron Sullivan Brown looked pretty good in a few in a few spots too. But uh, yeah, I think. The disappointing thing is that on this team that was wrought with such inexperience, the experienced guys, a lot of the time, not just in the receiving core, were the ones that let them down. Yeah, and Matt, we talked about the receiving core. Uh, Were there any other areas uh, where you felt like this team might not have uh, played up to its ability as a football team? I think the the receivers are the ones that everyone's going to point to so easily, like for all the reasons you guys just mentioned, but the, the other area that really sticks out because we've harped on it so much for, for what, three years now that we expected it to take, turn the corner is the offensive line. And there certainly were moments of improved play, but it's um, Dan Smith on our staff pointed out a couple of times um, in some of the conversations we've had, they just feel like the, the line as a whole has plateaued and I kind of enjoyed that that last game against Maryland. I know the competition level isn't isn't what it was earlier in the year, but when Men um, missed the game presumably due to injury, and they slid McGovern to guard and Miranda or McGovern to center and uh, put Miranda in at guard in his spot, things kind of seemed to click a little bit more. They seemed a little bit more aggressive, and that's certainly Miranda's mo. Um, is he's a real aggressive, powerful run blocking interior offensive lineman, and that seemed to at least for one game kind of click. Um, now there's still, you know, you have a guy like Mennett, who's a young guy, you have a guy like, like Fries, who's still a young guy, but you have Bates as a fourth year in the program, McGovern third year in the program and Gonzalez fourth year in the program are all guys you expect to be a little bit more consistently solid. It just, it felt like for much of the year, especially against those better lines they faced, they just weren't really there they kept getting beat with with the stunts and, and the different things the line the defensive lines were throwing at them and you i you know it's fair to question whether some of that's coaching whether that's just guys not playing to their potential um now i think there's still I, i'm always fascinated with with bowl games with groups like that where they don't really meet their potential where the pressure is kind of off especially in a situation like this where it's you know just it's a glorified exhibition game um, where the pressure's off and they kind of just go play ball. And so I'm, I'm intrigued to see from a unit that potentially can return all five starters plus the, the two deep as well. Really curious to see how they come out against Kentucky here in a couple of months, but I think it's or a couple of weeks, but I think as far as a, a disappointment, if it's not the receivers, it's certainly that group up front. Yeah. And I, you know, we're starting with the negative uh, nine and, for a nine and three team that is, uh, you know, I'm not going to look at the close wins, but they're uh, one tackle against Ohio State away, perhaps, and, you know, one knocking down a pass to Felton Davis away uh, from beating Ohio State and Michigan State. <laughs> so I think it's a good time to look at some positives. Um, Let's look at, and Matt, you can start here. What was, in your estimation, the best moment 
that we saw out of this team this year. Matt's dead. Long live Matt. Well, well, maybe not. Matt, are you there? I'm not. I'm not cutting this tape. This is staying. Oh, here we go. I, I was muted because I was coughing. There uh, you go. Um, I I, w- I was saying I wish this this the Ohio State game ended with eight minutes to play because the moment was there for that big signature win, that party in Happy Valley, a hundred and some thousand people going home excited. And we all know what happened from there. And there really wasn't the rest of the year that kind of signature win, um, that signature moment. Um, yeah, there was the overtime winning against Appalachian State, which is great, but it was, I think, more relief than excitement and, and best moment. Um, you know, the Wisconsin win was was all fine. It was a perfectly fine win, but Wisconsin wasn't what we expected they were. Um, you know, the Iowa game. They certainly had the potential to beat a decent Iowa team, and they won, but it was just kind of, you know, another, it was fine. Um, I guess if I had to pick a best moment, I probably would just go with that Maryland game for, you know, the, it was kind of the most complete performance of the year. And again, against a team that was talent-wise not what they, you know, up to the, the level of some of the teams they played earlier in the year, but it was the best game they played from start to finish. And just the the entire moment for Trace McSorley, who along with guys like Saquon Barkley and Marcus Allen and Mike Kosicki and Deshaun Hamilton that are so key in where Penn State football is now, for him to have a moment like that on senior day, his last game at Beaver Stadium, where you know he, he kind of gets to take it all in. It's, it's, it's cool to see guys like that get that kind of moment because you don't see it all the time. Um, so I guess as far as moment non <laughs> Non-performance-wise, that's what I'd go with, I guess. Yeah, and Nick, uh, yourself? I'm going to purposely ignore the singular nature of the word moment and change it to moments. Um, I think there were three that, when I saw this on our outline, three that popped out to me. One was the uh, Jonathan Thomas long, almost touchdown run that I believe he punched in on the next carry after that. Next carrier, um, like the one after that. Yeah, just because that was that was really cool to see to see him get a chance and to see him do that with his carry because he came in as he was a four star rated running back on ESPN and he never really got a chance at running back. He bounced over to linebacker, then back to running back, and I mean, someone who was clearly a transfer candidate really throughout his entire Penn State career. Um, he had the pedigree to maybe go play running back somewhere else, but he stuck around and uh, did whatever the coaches asked of him. So it was cool to see him get that chance. Um, and then the other two are Trace McSorley moments. One, um, I'll, I'll say, I'll, well, I have there for different reasons. One, um, Trace's, Trace's kneel and uh, kiss of the turf after the last game. That was just a really special thing. And I, I was thinking about how we didn't really get that with Saquon Barkley, and it, it wasn't a secret that he was going to the NFL. Obviously, he was going to go to the NFL, but it's just a little different when the, when there's a guy who still has eligibility because there's always the thought in the back of your mind that maybe they'll stay. Um, so it wasn't quite the same. I mean, he didn't get to walk on senior day, stuff like that. Uh, but this was truly like truly a celebration of Trace McSorley that last game. Um, I mean. 
I could also say that 20-yard touchdown run he had was just vintage Trace, and that was a cool moment too. Um, so just getting getting to watch and be be an onlooker to his kind of one of his final moments on the field, and you can just see how much how much these last what, five years meant to him, and um, it was it was just cool to see him take that all in, and cool to see him experience that. Um, and then the last one just because I'm not sure I've ever laughed harder at a play on a football field, maybe with the, what it was like a 98 yard fumble, 98 yard loss on a fumble in whatever game that was last year. Um, not a Penn state game, but I, the, the trace touchdown run against Iowa, I was dying laughing, watching him run past all the Hawkeye defenders when no one in that entire stadium thought that he was going to run that football. So that that was a really cool moment. Too. Why? Because he's like dragging his leg behind him because he could barely move on it. And yeah. yeah. He, he's still blown by everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that ruled. Um, I, when I was looking at this, I, the one the thing that my mind immediately went to was KJ Hamler scoring on a jet sweep against Pitt and then just giving them the peace sign because that ruled. Uh, <laughs> but I, I've gone back and watched that a few times and it's just, it, it's beautiful, but... Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of have to go with just watching Trace. Like, it's weird when you're sitting there and you're watching someone who is the best at something because I think you kind of take that for granted, especially because of what happened this year for largely reasons outside of Trace's control in the passing game. But like it, it's just special. Like it, I think we kind of went through this with Saquon Barkley, and we were kind of uh, we, we took it for granted a little bit. But like last year, Penn State had one of the freakiest running backs that college football has ever seen. Like, I there have been people who I, I think people get mad this year when the ball gets put on the ground by whether it's Miles Sanders or Ricky Slade because like. Saquon just didn't do that. And I don't think people will necessarily realize that like Saquon was an exception to how it normally works. And I think that with Trace, when it came down to something like watching him against Ohio State, where he was just he was just immense in that game. He was doing basically whatever he wanted. And of course he didn't get that opportunity in the last offensive play of the game, which stunk, but watching him in those games and watching him lead you know, they're in this tight one against Illinois, and he throws an interception, he goes off the field, and then he just lights Illinois on fire. Against Appalachian State, they need a drive at the end of the game, they put the ball in his hands, he goes and makes something happen. Like, it was fun getting those final little reminders that, oh wait, Trace McSorley is the dude, and he's always going to be the, he's always going to be our war daddy, and I, it's something I think we're going to miss, even though I think something we'll talk about a little bit later that this is going to be, uh, I think next year's team is the potential to be better. And of course the last moment is, uh, anytime they decided to play Mo Bamba during the Iowa game and it led to every player on the team, just like every attribute they had, if it was a game of NCAA went up by like 15 points for some reason, it was great. And I think we need more of that, uh, more Mo Bamba. Uh, no, I actually think Sheck West is, in some legal trouble. So never mind. We'll, uh, I'll take that one back. Uh, let's look at worst moments from this year. Um, the answer is running it on fourth and five against Ohio state when Miles Sanders is running it, sorry, running it at chase young, who's in the middle of the game of his life while 
Trace McSorley is doing whatever he wants to do against the Ohio State defense. Nick, what do you think? I think it was the Felton Davis touchdown, just because Michigan State's offense had been so bad that whole game, and I still don't know why he was single-covered. That was probably the most deflating moment for me. Well, he was single-covered because he... I mean, that's the cornerback that is... Future NFL first-round draft pick. Yeah, yeah. You put your ball-hawking corner there, and he does ball-hawk stuff, and it doesn't work. Matt, what about yourself? Uh, I teased this earlier, but the the last eight minutes of the Ohio State game, which includes that moment that we'll never talk about again, and then the, the Michigan State game as a whole, that was just a an affront to football in so many ways, the dropped interceptions, the, the back-to-back trick plays that set Michigan state up for their first touchdown, the just general stupidity that, that overtook Penn state that game that I I think Bill Conley had them like a 78 or 80% chance to win that game with the, you know, the post game recap is stat pack. And it just, you name a dumb thing Penn State could do, they did it in that game, and, and that's why we're sitting here at 9-3 and three instead of 10-2, and two, and, and it makes me sad. Yeah, uh, I actually have that up right now. Post-game win expectancy, Penn State was 76%. Adjusted scoring margin was 6.5 points. Uh, it was very bad. Also, Dad, th- oh, go ahead. I think he had Michigan State with, like, 20 points of turnover luck in that game, too, which is just yeah. absolutely absurd. It, it, was, it was a very Mark D'Antonio kind of game. It, and it didn't happen in East Lansing, which might have been the most surprising part of it all. It, and there was no wacky weather. No wacky weather. Yeah, it was weird. Uh, just one quick addition to the uh, best moment thing. Uh, Penn State scoring on the last possession against Wisconsin to make it 42-7. to seven. Not Wisconsin, uh, Michigan to make it 42-7. to seven. And the camera panning over to Don Brown, and he looks like he just like heard that a relative died or something. That was fun. Uh Moving on. How, how did none of us mention beating Pitt 51 to 6 in one of the most enjoyable moments, night games we've had in a while? It, it, you know, it's because I think. Well, it just there happened. wasn't a singular moment. Yeah. It was so long ago. I mean, I said like, PJ. Like a uh, season P- ago. I said KJ throwing up the peace sign. So at least there's that. That is true. But yeah, I mean, it ultimately comes back to the fact that, like. And this is, this is actually a thing that I think could be really fun for us to discuss really quickly. Like what we're ultimately going to remember about this team is that down the stretch, it, I mean, looking at it's after the bye, it lost to Michigan state. It really wanted to lose against Indiana. It almost lost against Iowa, got blown out by Michigan. Uh, It won a game that wasn't especially fun against Wisconsin. It won a game that very much wasn't fun against Rutgers. And then it beat Maryland. Like I almost think that like, and either of you could chime in here, like, I think we forget how good this team looked, especially on offense, leading up to the Ohio State game and for really large portions of that Ohio State game. Do you remember how many points per game we were averaging going into the Ohio State game? It was either first or second in the country in Ohio State. It was like 56 was or it was, We were first, Ohio State was second. We, had, we were averaging 56.5. Yeah. They were averaging fifty five point five. Yep, yep. That the, the last eight minutes of that Ohio State game just like it almost broke this team for a long stretch. And I saw someone say during the the Maryland game that it was the first time really since late, you know, the, the before eight minutes against Ohio State that the team looked like they were having fun playing football. 
and I think that's something I I tried to put into words. I never couldn't really figure it out to post on the site. You know, after the last game, that that had kind of been a hallmark of Penn State under James Franklin, especially the last you know 2016 and 2017 seasons. If they just had fun, you know, the sideline was jumping up and down. They were, you know, Trace's home run swing, the Saquon Barkley swimming arm. You know, just everyone was really enjoying. It. And yeah, they were winning games, which which helps too. But they kind of got into this haze and couldn't get out of it for a long time, where they just kind of kept expecting something bad to happen, and it kept happening. And until that Maryland game, where things finally started to click again. They just kind of were kind of anchor or not anchorless, but rudderless, and kind of just floating about at the whims of of the the wind for a while almost. Yeah, the the Iowa game was kind of like that. I thought like it, it wasn't as that game ended thirty to twenty four, and it very it very easily could have been a loss. Also, I mean the post game win expectancy was ninety five percent. Adjusted scoring margin of 15.5 percentile performance, 70% for the offense, 90% for the defense. So, like, that game kind of had that feel, but it wasn't like, like you said, like, Maryland was the first time since that Ohio State team that it felt like we were watching Penn State football. The Penn State football team that showed up for the first month of the year and showed up for the first... 3.75 3.75 quarters against Ohio State right up until uh, everyone forgot what a screen pass was. Uh, Nick, what about yourself? Like, what what do you kind of think about that? Well, what, wait, which part of that? <laughs> just just the... kind of the general thing about how, like, we... It, it feels like we're forgetting how good this team was at the very start of the season, albeit not against the best competition. Yeah, and I for me it kind of connects to something we were talking about before with the offensive line being disappointing. It's kind of been the same story the last three years for Penn State, and I think it's really connected to the offensive line because at the beginning of the year it always seems like, oh, the Penn State offensive line, they might be finally turning that corner. They're run blocking, and that is opening up the offense, and that's allowing us to score at will and then get into Big Ten play, and they kind of disappear again. So I think they're actually pretty closely related. Um I mean, I, I don't I don't think necessarily that the beginning of the year was a mirage because I think this team was very capable of scoring points all throughout the year, even when they stopped scoring points. And obviously, Trace's injury had a lot to do with that, too. But, um, I mean, I... Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's It's... It's. I don't think this is a fun... I don't think this was really a different team at any point in the year. It's just... Like Matt said, they just kind of they didn't really play with confidence after that Ohio State game, and that's kind of a byproduct of the team being so young. Because you're either the large majority of this team is either true freshmen who are coming from teams where they've been dominating and they know what they know what it looks like to play great football, or it's is a lot of uh, redshirt freshmen and sophomores and redshirt sophomores who have really only been here for winning. And they haven't really experienced a lot of losing. Now, that's not true of everyone because obviously the older guys were around for the first couple James Franklin seasons where they were just barely over 500. But um, I think that's kind of one of the byproducts of having a young team and having an experienced team like this because a lot of those guys hadn't really experienced. Lo- I mean, real, like a lot of the guys on the team hadn't experienced losing more than 
two games in the season or three games in a season if you go back to the USC loss too. So um, I think that does play a factor. It's it's kind of teaching guys and ha- letting them have those teachable moments about how to respond to losses like that. For sure. And to, to kind of get back on to a more positive track, and I, I take full credit for that diversion, let's talk about the team MVP. Um I'm going to go first because I host this stupid thing and I want to be the one who says his name first. Uh, Yitor Gross Matos is the scariest man I've ever seen in my life. Like, he is... If you built a defensive end in a lab to just, like, ruin people's lives, it would be him. 45 tackles on a year. Uh, only the three starting linebackers, and I'm putting Micah Parsons as starting linebacker over Coa Farmer because why wouldn't I? And Garrett Taylor had more. His 20 tackles for loss easily led the team. His eight sacks uh, didn't easily lead the team. Robert Windsor, surprisingly, was half a sack behind him. But his 26 and a half run stuffs led the team. I plays where he was involved in the tackle gained on average 0.4 yards. Like he was a stud. He is a piece this defense can build around. And I think even in the event that Penn State loses, uh, loses Sharif Miller to the NFL draft, which I really hope he does end up going because, you know, he's a talented guy and should get paid for his ability to play football. Yitor Grossmatos is going to be the superstar of this defense heading into next year and is going to be a legitimate All-American candidate and a guy who he still maybe hasn't reached his potential yet because of how late he came on in the season and turned into just a force off the edge. Uh, Matt, I want to go to you. Like, Who is your team MVP this year? I'm glad you mentioned Gross Matos because he just, especially the second half of the year, was just so, so good. And I think his emergence helped guys like Windsor and Givens play better or, or be noticed more because he was starting to draw more attention because he just had become so dominant. Um, but I, I know Nick will mention him probably, but I'm going to get there first. It's KJ Hamler. And you, it's a scary thought to think where Penn State's offense would have been without him, especially early in the year when nothing seemed to go right from a, a receiving standpoint. He just, it, he was so electric, so confident, was always seemed to be the guy making the play when they needed one. Um, and you can you know list off a hundred different examples, it seems like. And it's so easy to forget that this was the first time he's played football, really, in, in over two years because he had that injury in his first game of his, his high school senior season. And I'm so glad that we get one, two, three more years of him. I'm not sure we get a, a redshirt senior year out of him to get really ahead of myself here. Um, but you, you, I, we feel like we've only you know just seen the tip of the iceberg with how good he's going to be. And I think you start to surround him with guys that are are talented and, and and realize that talent. You know, we all know how the receivers struggle this year, like we talked about earlier. You start to surround him with with more consistent play all over the offensive side of the ball and you just it's it's enticing to think about how much better he's going to become as he's not the guy that everyone keys on from a defensive standpoint for sure uh nick who uh who gets the award for you trace mcsorley i mean it's like like bill's been saying all year without trace mcsorley that's an eight and four football team probably worse I mean, he's no, it wasn't his best season, but this team still ran through him, obviously, as the quarterback. But 
I mean, this they without Trace McSorley, this is a really rough season. Even at even at his, I, I guess you could say worst as a Penn State football player, he was still really, 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 really good and really feared by everybody that went up against him and really respected by everybody that went up against him. Um, and I, as much as I would love to say a guy like Pat Fryermuth, I'll give him an honorable mention. Um, it ha- I, for me, it has to be McSorley. I mean, because this this team's. I mean, they're nothing without him. They're not. They were nothing without his leadership, and I, I think they're in a good position to find new leaders next year to replace him or to take his spot rather. But I don't think you'll ever truly replace a guy like that. But for me, it has to be McSorley. Yeah, uh, we also need to give a very necessary shout out to KJ Hamler. I mean, he's. I he, I just oh. did. He yeah. literally just talked about. Sorry, it. sorry. I'm, I'm I would ignore me too, but sorry. I'm I'm talking with a coworker about Josh Allen, right? The the uh, Buffalo Josh Allen, not the uh, not the the uh, Kentucky Josh Allen, who I hope takes a very long vacation period. Yeah. Also, who cares what Matt says? Uh, but yeah, KJ, you're great. I love you. Um, next next year, I hope they find more fun ways to get KJ the ball. Uh, and the other reason I was going to talk about KJ is because it leads into the transition for the final thing we're going to talk about, which is just a very, very quick look ahead to next year and next year's team. Um, I don't have the schedule up in front of me right now. I'll pull it up in a second. But as Idaho. A... Oh, yeah. Do they go it's to the bad KB... schedule? We'll just, can we just leave it at that? Yeah. Do they go to the Kibbe Dome at schedule. all? Do they go where? Do they go to the Kibbe Dome at any point? Or, like, that's not a home no. at home, right? No, oh, no. It's, it's a one, one off. We pay them a lot of money and then they never come back again. The epitome of brutality if they lose that one. Uh, the <laughs> So, as I look at this Penn State team, uh, I have the schedule up now. Uh, they have that game uh, against Idaho. Then they play a Buffalo team that's going to be losing a lot. Then they play Pitt at home. Um, in which Kenny Pickett will still be the second-best quarterback of the field. And then, yeah, it, it gets into not, like, their October is kind of brutal. Their September is very, very, very manageable and borderline easy. Their November, aside from having to travel to Columbus, is pretty easy. But that October, Purdue at Iowa, Michigan at Michigan State, is really tough. But I think the thing that makes this team so... Uh, intriguing heading into next year, Nick, is in the event that Miles Sanders stays and in the event that a few guys on defense that can leave, say, you know, guys like John Reed, he's the main one that I'm looking at, it feels like if they figure out who they want at quarterback, I don't want to say the sky's the limit for the team, but they have the potential to be damn near special. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at the offense, aside from the possibility of Ryan Bates and Connor McGovern potentially going into the draft, and then uh, obviously Trace McSorley and the potential of Miles Sanders, they've returned really most of the key pieces that they could return. I mean, you're going to have Pat Fryermuth again, you're going to have KJ Hamler again, you're going to have John Dotson again. You're going to have Justin Shorter, who's going to get a lot more playing time next year when he's hopefully not injured. Um, you're going to have Juwan Johnson back. He's not going to the NFL now. And if he can rediscover his hands, that's a potentially huge boost again next year. 
Um, you're going to have Cameron Sullivan. Brown. I mean, you're going to have all those guys we mentioned before. Um, you're going to have guys like Zach Koontz be ready to take on bigger roles. So there's going to be a lot of skill positions uh, with a lot of a lot in the cupboard on the offensive side of the ball. And then defensively, like you said, I'd, I'd be pretty surprised to see John Reed go just because I, his stock was really high going into last season. I, he had a rough start to the year, so I, his, I'm sure his stock isn't where it was before. The only reason I could see him leaving is if he just decides, ah, I don't really want to be one of the, I don't want to be a fifth year guy. I have an NFL potential future. I might as well just go now. Um, so I could see that, but I mean, you're returning almost everyone on the defense, and while Nick Scott had a uncanny ability to be in the right place at the right time for turnovers and things like Nate Stanley throwing the ball right to him while Noah Fant looks in the other direction. They're going to get better at safety because Nick Scott just wasn't, wasn't a great safety and they have some really talented guys that should be able to fill his place. So they're returning almost everyone and could get even better at some of the spots they are replacing. So the sky is absolutely the limit for this team, regardless of whether it's Tommy Stevens at quarterback or Sean Clifford at quarterback. At that point, it just comes down to which do you want to run an offense that has more of the trace running style from this past year or more of the trace passing style because both guys can kind of do what Trace was able to do in half of his game. Neither one of them is going to be able to replace him completely and for everything he could do. Um, but I think either one is, could be successful, and the team that they're going to put around that quarterback is going to be scary, scary good. Yeah, I mean, even if a guy like Miles Sanders leaves, like Ricky Slade is waiting in the ri- wings. I mean, Journey Brown is, uh, you know, we think he's a pretty talented dude, and he has some... Uh, he looked good. Yeah. I was impressed with Journey Brown this year. Like, even if he's more of just a guy to kind of, like, spell Ricky Slade... He's a guy who seems like he has the ability to do some things in the backfield. Uh, I'm trying to remember, did they... Uh, C.J. Holmes. They've C.J. Holmes. Yeah, I I completely forgot about him. The former four-star, I believe, running back who went to, uh, went Notre, to Dame. Notre Dame and uh, decided that he didn't want to be part of Brian Kelly's program and then uh, came over here. And then even someone like, you know, a Devin Ford who is in the program, who's going to be in the program, who... Talented enough running back. They will talk recruiting in a sec. They have other running backs on their board. That position will be fine, but just looking at where this team's going to be next year, quarterback, there's talent there. They just have to figure it out. Running back, wide receiver, tight end, there's plenty of talent there, and it will take an offensive line, even for that matter, if a, even if a guy like a Ryan Bates or a Connor McGovern goes pro. There's talent there. The defensive line is going to have a bunch of dudes. Linebacker is going to be taking... Uh, should take a step forward for the most part, whether it's because uh, the guys who are kind of established take step forward or because guys like Jesse Lukita and Ellis Brooks have a little bit more seasoning and are able to contribute. There's talent on special teams. There's talent in the secondary. It looks like it's all within this team's grasp and it has the potential to do some special stuff, especially if Ohio State takes a step back uh, with Urban Meyer falling down a well and being unable to get out, with uh, you know Michigan potentially losing a good number of guys off of this year's team, it's there for the taking with them, Matt. And you know, like Nick and I are saying, like it's 
they can do so much if they're able to make it all work. Yeah, I, I go back to something Nick mentioned uh, when he was talking about um, you know, one of the, the topics earlier about the lack of leadership and, and the youth of the team just kind of as a whole. And Bill, you and I talked about this quite a bit on and off during the year, but the best players on this year's teams team for the most part were the young guys. And for the most part, all those guys are coming back and they, they've gained valuable experience. And I think one of the big things for me is you expect a guy like KJ Hamler, for example, or a guy like Jahan Dotson or a guy like Micah Parsons on the other side of the ball to kind of grow into more of a leadership role because they're going to be looked to going into the year to be counted on to be more of the guy. And that wasn't really the case this year. Um, but even if they lose guys like Miles Sanders or Sharif Miller, who are probably the two guys that the three of us, I think, expect probably to to look to the NFL. Um, there's you know the handful of other guys that you mentioned that you might lose one or two of them. But they return, like you guys said, so much that I hate to, to boil it down to if they get quarterback play, they're going to be really, really good. But that's kind of what it is. Um, there's so much talent all over the field. And we saw, especially in the defensive side, how what much that talent improved and, and where the, the key production came from with, with the younger players. And then you add in guys like Brandon Smith and Lance Dixon on that side of the ball, Devin Ford, John Dunmore, um, you know, take one. Uh, he's not going to play, but I'm, I'm going down the, the list of, of recruits here. And the difference, I think, with this year's class, I'm going to segue here into the, the next topic or a, a later topic is you're going to have those recruits that aren't going to be counted on to do as much probably as you were this year with some of the young guys, you can bring them along at a more appropriate pace. You're not going to expect them to be the guy like you kind of were forced to do this year. Um, but I, I think a lot of the, the lumps that they took this year, especially on the offensive side of the ball, you expect to kind of pay dividends going into 2019 because you can draw on those experiences. You can draw on the, we found ways to win. We got better at this. We got better at that. And it's really can be your springboard in, into next season, whether it's Sean Clifford or Tommy Stevens taking the stamps at center or at quarterback from the center. Yeah. And I'm really excited to see how the guys who uh, have been in practice and have taken advantage of the red shirt rule to whatever extent that they can, how that helps them, the Justin Shorters, the Jason Owens, the uh, PJ Mustafers, those sorts of dudes. But I also like just really want to see what year two of Micah Parsons looks like because he already looks like Neo in the Matrix, and I kind of want to see what happens if, uh, you know, now that he knows. I want to see what happens when Micah Parsons totally knows what he's doing because that's going to be terrifying. Uh, I, I think that puts a little bow on uh, what we wanted to talk about there. Moving on, uh, Penn State's. Going bowling, uh, going to be talking, uh, taking on the uh, taking on the mighty Kentucky Wildcats in uh, the Citrus Bowl, uh, Kentucky this year. Uh, impressive season for them. Went nine and three, five and three in SEC play. They uh, took down our beloved Coach Tuddies. They went to the swamp and beat Florida. Um, some less than stellar months. I mean, like the fact that they lost to Georgia by seventeen is like impressive for Kentucky. They lost at Texas A&M by six. So there are some very solid things about this team. 
on offense, they have Benny Snell, who's one of the most fun and just wonderful running backs in all of college football. On defense, they have Kentucky Josh Allen, who I believe was might have been named the best defensive player in college football. He might have won some award uh, that is given to them, that gets given out. I mean, he's very good. There's talent on this Kentucky team. It's a dangerous Kentucky team. Uh, when you're looking at this bowl matchup, Matt, what do you think about uh, the 2018 Wildcats and how Penn State's going to go up against them come, uh, come New Year's Day? The extent of my knowledge of Kentucky football is their S&P profile. And they are very, like you said, very good at running the football with Benny Snell. They are generally very good at stopping teams defensively, led by Josh Allen, who was the SEC Defensive Player of the Year. Um, they remind me of Wisconsin in the fact that they are very, very, very one-dimensional on offense. It, it is They go as Benny Snell goes. They're, the only thing they do well in the passing game is catch the ball. I think their completion percentage or completion rate or whatever Bill calls it is like 18th nationally. Everything else is like 100th or worse. Um, I think, again, this, this is from a spreadsheet is where I'm getting my knowledge. I think your game plan going in is, is stop Benny Snell and um, a lot of kind of what you saw Penn State trying to do against Wisconsin where, um, yeah, he'll probably get his, but we're not going to get let anyone else. Their leading receiver is former, future Penn Stater, Lynn Bowden Jr. from Youngstown, Ohio. Um, who had a solid year, but they just they don't have that guy that scares you stretching the field. You know, you don't have to worry about getting beat over the top, really. So I think you're going to see, I, I, in theory at least, a lot of what they employed against Wisconsin and Jonathan Taylor um, with, with Hornerbrook out, where you're going to, yeah, they're going to run the ball. Yeah, they'll probably control the clock. But as long as we don't let them break the big run, we think we can move the ball enough to, to score and it'll be, there's there are I think six point favorite and Bill Conley has him at like nine and a half or ten points. So on paper this looks like a pretty comfortable win, you know, a nice way to end the year. But um, bowl games are always weird because you don't you know who wants to be there more. Um, you know, does Josh Allen play? I know he's kind of floated the idea that he you might consider sitting out this one because he's a likely top ten or fifteen NFL draft pick. Um, so there's, there's so many unknowns, but on paper, this is a pretty favorable matchup for Penn State. Yeah, I'm doing a quick Google search for whether there's any... Uh, oh, apparently, uh, back on November 24th, uh, Josh Allen and Benny Snell were both uh, kind of up in the air on whether or not they'd play in uh, Kentucky's bowl game. Snell said, uh, as of then, he was playing. He was going to play in the bowl game. Um Josh Allen said, just like the decision I made to come back to school, it will be the same process. I have a whole month, almost two months to decide what I'm going to do, what's best for my family and the team. I'm, it's going to be a decision I have to make, but we'll see. So it looks like if it, it looks like it might be a little bit up in the air with Allen, which again, as a Penn State fan, I'd like it if he sat out as a person. I'd like it if he uh, protected his ability to go get paid. Uh, Nick, kind of what are your thoughts on this Kentucky team as you're, uh, as you're looking through them based on whatever you might have watched from them, that sort of thing? Like Bill said, the story of Kentucky is that they can run the ball and they play defense. But even they're running the ball, I know Matt uh, compared them to Wisconsin, they're kind of like Melvin Gordon, Wisconsin, because the rushing numbers look gaudy, but they're not terribly efficient. It's just that they run a lot. Um, I think, let's see, Benny Snell had 
263 carries this year for 1,300 yards. So five yards are carry, which is a good average, but for the way that he's talked about on ESPN and the way he's talked about on college game day and all that stuff, you'd think he was averaging like nine yards a carry, and he's not. He just gets a lot of work because that's all that Kentucky can really do offensively is run the ball. So as far as... I mean, as far as a matchup for Penn State, this is a pretty great matchup for them. I think it's one that they should be able to win fairly easily. Uh, the defense, like we've been talking about, the defense took major steps throughout the second half of this year, and they showed that against against Wisconsin this year, they showed that they can. And I know Jonathan Taylor's numbers would have looked a little different without that seventy-one yard touchdown run, but they can corral a running game enough to not let it beat them. Um, so I, as a, I mean, as a matchup, I'm not terribly worried as a Penn state fan. I think Penn state should be able to win pretty comfortably. I think that they'll probably be, well, I don't know. I don't know if I want to say the more motivated team because Kentucky did have a really, really nice year for them. And I'm sure they'd like to cap it off with a bowl win as well. But Penn state has the advantage of that. They, I mean, they probably aren't going to have anybody that sits at a bowl game because, all those guys could benefit from that one extra game of tape. And then, of course, the most important guy, Trace McSorley, he's sure as hell not sitting out the bowl game because, I mean, <laughs> he, first of all, it's kind of up in the air what his NFL future will really be, but um, it's just not, I mean, that's not really, that's not his style. You know he's going to be in that game. So uh, I think it's a good matchup for Penn State. I think that it I mean, it'll be nice if they can pull it off. It'll be nice to end the year with a win over an SEC team. Um, and, I mean, it's it's not the flashiest matchup. Um, Kentucky is a pretty is a pretty boring team, all things considered. But at least it's something a little bit different. It's, it's different than playing against, like, Georgia again, and that probably wouldn't have gone very oh, well God, anyway. That'd be a bullet. <laughs> So it's, I mean, at least it's a different team. At least it's something a little bit different. I don't know when the last time we played Kentucky was. I haven't looked it up, but um, It'll in be that twenty years to the day of the game when they, well, they, uh, they played them, I oh I wait, that's right. Let's let's ask, let's ask Pat Ford what happened in that game. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, uh, go I, on, I, go I, on Twitter. I, I, I was gonna I envy people who don't get that joke because that they are nowhere near as online as us. Uh, but yeah, as a, it's weird because I'm looking at this Kentucky team. I've watched them a bit this year. Their defense can be really really nasty when they're clicking. Um, their offense is bad, like not subpar. It's generally a pretty bad offense. Uh, Matt was talking about how their pass, in terms of S&P Plus statistics, uh, their passing offense is uh, not good aside from completion rate, and even then they're just like tossing the ball for five yards and hoping for the best. They're rushing S&P. They're 50th in offensive rushing S&P. Opportunity rate's good. Stuff rate is good. You're not going to tackle them behind the line of scrimmage. So you're going to have chances to slow them down. And looking at how many points they've scored... Their last two games, Middle Tennessee, eh, Louisville gave up by the end of the year. Seven points against Tennessee, 17 against Georgia, 15 against Missouri, 14 against Vanderbilt, 14 against Texas A&M. It's not exactly a high-powered offense. What makes this game interesting to me, though, is that 
the quote-unquote weakness of Kentucky's defense is their rushing defense, 36th in rushing S&P Plus, 15th in passing S&P Plus, but at the same time, their standard down S&P Plus is, on defense is 16th nationally, rushing, uh, passing down S&P Plus is 52nd nationally, so I'm very interested to see what Penn State is able to do in the event that, you know, on the wild outcome that this happens, that maybe Penn State gets behind the chains on a third down and is in a passing down and maybe has the flexibility to run the ball in those situations against a rushing defense where you could do a little bit of stuff. Uh, this game changes up a lot if Josh Allen doesn't play. Um, he really, really is a special football player, and he's the kind of guy who can make life very difficult for an opposing offense. Even if he doesn't, like, Cash Daniels is a very good player. They're a talented, well-coached defense. Um, I'm expecting the six foot nine defensive end Calvin Taylor to knock down a trace passer 13. But I'm really excited to see what this Penn State team is going to be able to do when it has a month to prepare, a month for everyone, especially Trace McSorley, to get healthy. We saw out of Ricky Ronnie last year, heading into the Fiesta Bowl, when he has a month to prepare, he can do a pretty solid job as an offensive coordinator. I want to see what Penn State can do here. I think they can make this game special, and really, I just want to see them send Trace McSorley out on top, because that's, you know, really, that's what it's all about at this point. Like, can you send Trace McSorley out where he gets this kind of last moment of glory um, against a team that, you know, a team that, Top to bottom, I think Penn State's better than. But make, keep it locked on the site. We might do another pot. I know exactly one Kentucky football fan, so I might have them on uh, to discuss it. But we'll figure that stuff out later. Uh, Matt, do you want to talk about decisions made by teenagers? Uh, only uh, certain teenagers. Okay, uh, let's go down the list of... Uh, uh, I think we can identify that there are some quote-unquote big targets in this class um in terms of star power and stuff like that so we'll just go i, I have uh 24/7's prospect list up we'll go top to bottom on the big names as they pop up for me nick you can chime in where so all y'all know of nick as the recruiting guy but what you might know is that since he got married nick has checked out on recruiting hardcore and i envy him greatly for this so nick you can chime in wherever you would like to but for the most part I think Matt will kind of... Uh... My life is so much better now. <laughs> yeah. I no yeah. longer care about teenagers. Although, fun fact, one of the kids I coach, one of the one of my baseball teenagers that I coach just committed to Virginia Tech today. So that's Ooh, fun. Good for him. So let's go top to bottom, uh, Matt. And I think we kind of have to start with uh, Zach Harrison. The, he, you know, he's been the big name since kind of the beginning of this class, the four-star kid. Sounds like if Penn State was in his backyard, he'd be committed to Penn State, but it looks like now Michigan might be the team in the driver's seat for uh, the five-star defensive end from Ohio. Yeah, he's, he's from about 20 minutes north of, of campus and there in Columbus. Um, uh, James Franklin and pretty much the entire coaching staff, so to speak, uh, went in home with him the first day they were able to when the contact period opened. Um, they are probably in a distant third at this point. This is a, a Michigan, Ohio state race. And I would suspect given the news out of Columbus earlier today, um, as we're recording this, that 
Michigan has probably pulled ahead a little bit more. They were seen as the leader um, kind of going into this final stretch. He plans to to commit this month and enroll early. I believe it's still his plan. So um, never say never. You know, Franklin, like I said, was in home and, and met with him and his family uh, last week. But I, I would probably guess Michigan at this point for, for Harrison, but we'll see. Nick, anything to add? I'm going. I'm going to end every like Matt yes. discussion with Nick. Yes. Anything to add? Go ahead. That that's exactly what I want you to do. <laughs> Zach Harrison is a large human and looks like a great football player. There you go. There we go. That I, folks. Where else can you get that analysis? I mean, honestly, uh, moving Nick's down- back in charge of recruiting for the site. That that was just perfect. <laughs> Moving down the list, uh, four-star defensive end uh, Adissa Isaac from Brooklyn. Uh, Penn State has looked like the team to beat on him for some time. Uh, released a top four, Penn State's in it. Penn State still seems like it's in the driver's seat, but he wants to elongate his process for just a little while longer. Yeah, he. Um, th- there might not be a player in the country that's rising as fast as he is up the rankings. I, bl- I believe he's top 75, top 100 now on the, in the composite rankings. Um, really, really raw athlete. Um, I don't want to throw Jason Oway out there cause he's just a freak, but that kind of player that, um, is still relatively new to football. That's still kind of learning the game. Um, that's true. A lot of those kids out of, um, New York city, especially cause they play such a short football season. Um, he took his official visit back in, I believe it was September for the, uh, the week before Ohio state, whoever they played that game was at the Kent state game. Um, and, like you said, Bill, he's kind of been seen as a heavy Penn State lean for a while, but um, is is taking his time and taking his visits, as I think everyone should in that case, where they, one, get free visits to college campuses and have very wealthy coaches swoon over them. Um, and and it, it gives you a more informed decision as well. You you know make sure you get all the information you can. But I would expect uh, Penn State to land him when, when he opts to commit here later this month. Nick, thoughts? Getting him for two would be great for two reasons. One, because Penn State's been after a bunch of guys from New York City and Brooklyn specifically in the last few years and has missed on almost all of them, if I remember correctly. Um, and two, we need more Adisas. You, you know, I'd say I was thinking the same thing, but I'd uh, be lying. I've actually never had that thought. But yeah, it makes sense. Uh, next up, uh, I don't think we need to spend too much time with David Bell. Uh, Jeff Brom heading back to Purdue seems like it makes that a pretty open and shut case. No, Matt. Yeah, I, th- I think uh, the hope was that Brom left for Louisville and and Bell opened things up a little bit. But the uh, the Indianapolis kid seems like he's staying home, and Penn State's quest for one more receiver in this class move goes on if they if they can find the right fit. Uh, n- uh yeah, no, I'm just not going to waste mixed time. Uh, boiler up, boiler up. Uh. God, him and Rondale Moore is going to be a blast. Uh, Ja'Kai Moore, uh, name that's been around for seemingly ever, but just hasn't uh, hasn't committed yet. Has it down to Penn State and I believe South Carolina and maybe one other place, Matt? Yeah, he's he's kind of making it up as he goes. I want to say almost um, Penn State and South Carolina have kind of been seen as as the leaders. He's got. Uh, I believe he will be on campus this weekend uh, with the the big official visit weekend. Um, Clemson has has kind of put their foot in the door there, and so you know never count out Dabo. Um, get a chance to go play for for the the best non Alabama program in the country. You you certainly look at it, but 
all the signs seem to point to Penn State there, but um, he's visited a lot. He's you know when he's been asked, he's had glowing glowing reviews. But um, I'm not even really sure if he's planning to to sign in December. If he's going to drag this into January and see if he can't uh, can't uh, prolong the process a little bit more. Uh, next up, a pair of defensive tackles: uh, Jared Harrison Hunt and and Devon Ellis. Uh, Ellis is kind of a, a late arrival to the scene. He got his offer. I'm going to see if I can pull him up here really quick. This is very, very professional uh, broadcasting, yeah, podcasting uh, here. It's as we, we, we make it up as we go. It's 10.30 um, p.m. Penn State basketball lost a game by two in which it missed 15 free throws. Like, we don't care. Um, Ellis is a guy. He's a, a Maryland kid. Um, another pretty, pretty high riser. He's gone from relative... Um, average three-star to a solid four-star kid now, but he's down to, to Ohio State and Penn State. And the question with Ohio State, with not just him, but the other guy you mentioned, Jared Harrison Hunt, where it's probably a Penn State-Ohio State top two for each of them, is will Ohio State, who, who is at the top of their board? Because um, they probably are only, are only taking one more tackle in this class. And I'm not sure if either of these guys are the guy. Um, but obviously with the, the coaching change there, then, you know, a lot of things are up in the air as far as, um, the top targets and, and where they're going to spend their remaining scholarships. Dick, anything to add? I have no idea who Devon Ellis is. He's good. Uh, moving on to the last game. I, I see he went to McDonough school, so that's good. Yeah. Mo- uh, Moving on to who's going to be the last kid in this completely off-the-rails and terrible segment. Um, if you asked me two weeks ago, or even a week ago, we wouldn't be talking about him. But all before, the... Wait, wait. Before you say his name, I see somebody on this list named Jaquez Sorrels. I would like him. Um, sure. Oh, there he is. Hey, what's up, dude? Uh, Jaquez. Yeah, cool. Uh, final kid, uh, and again, this is kind of out of left field, and it seems like it's coming out of nowhere. Uh, that would be Nolan Smith, the number one commit in the con- number one player in the country. Uh, he's committed to Georgia, but he's looking around, and no one seems to have a really good read on whether he's going to stick to his commitment to Georgia or whether he's going to open it up and. Uh, look at one of the programs that he has visited, but over the weekend he visited Penn State and just based on social media, which is always a dangerous thing to base things off of, it doesn't seem like it could have gone any better for him. No, I think his best weekend of my life or one of the best weekends of my life. Um, I think we're, we're all certainly intrigued with the, the, the prospect of of landing the number one player in the country seemingly out of out of left field. Um, I think that there's two things to, to keep in mind here. One, his uh, I believe his defensive coordinator at IMG Academy is Keith Goganius, a uh, former Penn State football player who many of you uh, older listeners probably remember from from the late 90s or early 90s, I should say. Um, and the other is he and Micah Parsons are real close um, as elite football players. Are, are known to be. So I think those two things kind of have pushed him to at least take the visit. 
and and as we say all the time, you get a kid on campus who really knows what's going to happen. You know, you, you get your shot, but I would be absolutely floored. And I, I don't know what I would do if, if when he makes his final decision, if it's Penn state, I feel like I need to do something absolutely ridiculous because the, the prospect of that happening, I, I can't even process it in my mind. It, it's such a, a, a leap to, to consider, but um, it's a, it's a high school teenager and uh, who really knows what he's thinking. Uh, Nick, do you know what he is thinking? No, but his scouting report comparison player is Khalil Mack. Are you kidding me? Yeah, Khalil Mack was a two-star. What the hell? Oh, my God. Let's, let's get him. Yeah. Why not? That wouldn't be bad. I, Nick, I agree. Just uh, spot on analysis. It seems like a good idea. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. So, so the final thing we're going to talk about... Uh, you know, th- this one's been going on for a while, but we also haven't done a podcast in a while, so who cares? Uh, looking at uh, the Big Ten East, uh, two job op- one job became open and got filled today uh, when Ohio State's Urban Meyer announced he's going to step down at the conclusion of the season, at which point offensive coordinator, former interim head coach for the Buckeyes, Ryan Day, is going to take over for him. Uh, and then Maryland uh, decided that, uh, you know, telling Matt Canada to hold a program together after its coach murdered one of its players, uh, wasn't good enough to have him keep the head coaching job. So instead, they decided to hire a Broyles Award winner from uh, the University of Alabama, Mike Loxley. Uh, Nick, just because you haven't like had to speak about anything uh, in a while with any substance to it, what do you think about uh, both of these? Obviously, I think we can agree that one of these was a little bit better, and it's not the job that ended up with Mike Loxley. Yeah, neither of these hires is surprising. I mean, it's it, the writing was on the wall for Ryan Day to be the guy to take over for Urban Meyer, whether it was going to be next year or the year after. So, I, I, I mean, it's not a lot of surprise with either of these. Um, it's it's going to be interesting to see how it impacts Ohio State recruiting-wise just because I know I know that there's going to be plenty of stability with the program. I'm sure Ryan Dale keep on a lot of the coaches, and obviously as a guy who was already there, he was already doing a lot of recruiting, I'm sure. But I know some, some I don't remember if this was in conversation with somebody or if it was actually Matt, it maybe, may have even been you that said it, but it's, it's obviously, obviously going to be different with it not being Urban Meyer. I mean, he's Urban Meyer, he's... Um, statistically one of the greatest coaches in college football history. And that alone can do a lot for getting kids to come play for you. Uh, Ryan Day has a great reputation and I'm sure he's going to do just fine at Ohio State, but he's not Urban Meyer. So it'll be interesting to see what sort of impact that has, um, whether or not he continues to try to recruit on that national level, tries to recruit Florida which obviously Urban Meyer knew really well from his time at Florida, so it'll be interesting to see how that affects things uh, because Ohio State has brought in a ton of kids from out of state recently. Um, and then the the Maryland one, the Michael, I mean, we saw Mike Loxley to Maryland coming from a mile away. It's not surprising. It's not, uh, it's not really that exciting of a hire. Yeah, he just won the Broyles Award, but it's not that hard to do when you have two Atungavailoa leading your offense. So uh, it could end up it could end up fine for Maryland. I it's they've I think what DJ Durkin did before murdering a human being 
Um, I think what he did recruiting is kind of Maryland's ceiling unless they start winning a whole bunch of games. So, And I think Mike Loxley probably has enough name brand at this point that he can probably keep them at the same level Durkin was at. Um, Recruiting-wise, whether or not he's able to do that on the field, not that they really did much on the field with Durkin anyway. Um, but, I mean, it's it's not a bad hire. It's not like Maryland was going to have options on options, whether they would, I mean, the kind of the young, the probably the guy that would have the, the profile that would have fit a job like that would be a guy like Scott Satterfield, who either officially has the Louisville job or is going to get the Louisville it's job. Official, I'm not sure. Okay. So yeah, official. they announced that earlier today. Yeah. So if you're Maryland, I mean, you're not going to get, you're probably not going to get any of the other young guns that are looking for those big jobs. So I, I mean, it's fine. It's whatever. It's not exciting, but Maryland right now kind of just needs somebody to come in and kind of just give the program some stability. So whatever. Well, I mean, they, they should, should have just hired Matt Canada. I mean, that's, yeah. Like, yeah. I, I mean, I, it, yeah. He he got he got done. Like to me, it, it's going to be fascinating in the event that Mike Locke was only there for three or four years. Like what that job search looks like, especially if Matt Canada is in a somewhat prominent position. I think the fact that his offense is viewed as very gimmicky probably hurt him in this coaching search. Um, but, I'm curious too what his relationship was with the AD and with. Uh, kind of the boosters because he's been I mean what he's been at a different school every year for the last five years something like that yeah it's cool. it's been a very weird like I know Pitt to LS Pitt to LSU was a matter of you know LSU just well, wanted him and they yeah. wanted to they wanted to give him money to come do his stuff and then he just clashed with Dakojo and he ends up at Maryland but yeah I mean they really should have just given him the job I mean to me it's like it's just really gross again that. You asked for someone to take over your program and to keep that program together after a player was murdered, after everything came out about the toxic culture at Maryland. And Matt Canada rolled up his sleeves and he did it to the best of his ability. I, I believe, Matt, you mentioned to me earlier in the day that if they convert that two-point conversion against Ohio State, like he's their full-time head coach. But it... To me, like, that's just gross. And then with Ohio State, they, they did what they had to do. I mean, they gave Urban Meyer his guy. And, you know, now Urban Meyer's gone, and it's going to be, uh, you know, Ohio State's still going to be very good. I mean, I'm sure there are going to be questions about whether everyone sticks around, whether a guy like Larry Johnson decides he wants to stick around, whether a guy like Greg Schiano is for another head, for a head coaching job, whatever. But it's Ohio State. It's going to be fine. Yeah, I... I'll, 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 you and I can record an entire podcast on, on these two hires alone, but I will, for the sake of everyone listening, who, God bless you if you're still tuned in, I'll try to I will keep this brief. Ryan Day, it, everything about Ryan Day getting the Ohio State job makes total sense. You're not going to, it's really hard to replace a guy that did what Urban Meyer did at Ohio State, nine losses in seven years. It just It's unfathomable. You're not going outside the program to replace a guy like that. You just, you, I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you have a coaching search to to replace that guy, um, and and have any, you know, think it's going to turn out okay. Um, so it makes sense, but 
all of us are young enough where we we know Ohio State as this just behemoth power, you know, going back to to really most of John Cooper's tenure there. They are a 10-win national championship contending team just about every year. And to hand the keys to a program like that to a guy who has only been in Columbus for two years and has essentially zero head coaching experience. Yeah, he, he coached those three games earlier in the year, but Urban was around for that. The, the head coach at Ohio State is is like the head coach at Penn State or Alabama or Michigan where you are so much more than the guy that you know, diet that game plans for the Michigan game and calls plays on Saturday. Your, your phone rings when something goes wrong, you're out fundraising, you're, you're getting pulled in a hundred different directions. So I'm really, really curious to see how that goes. It could be a Lincoln Riley level of success where you go to the playoff in two straight years, or I'm not saying they're going to go six and six, but this can go very nine and three ish very quickly. I feel like if, if Ryan day is not up to, all those things that coaching Ohio State entails. Then, as far as Maryland, it's just I, I don't know why we. As I think about this, I don't know why we expected the group that thought bringing DJ Durkin back was gonna do was gonna handle this correctly. Um, Mike Loxley is, has three wins in his head coaching career, and yeah, two of those years were at New Mexico, and one was uh, the last six games after they fired Randy Edsel. But I, I I don't know what he is other than. He's coached at Maryland a bunch of times. He's had, I think, two or three separate tenures. He's from D.C., and he did a really good job calling plays for the best collection of talent in the country at Alabama, and he was in a lot of meetings with Nick Saban. I I don't know why he's your guy when Matt Canada's interested. He's one of your finalists. Um, I have, believe me, I have thoughts on Pep Hamilton at Michigan and, and, and his – level of, of qualifications for, for any sort of football coaching job. But Mike Loxley is such a inside the box hire for a program that needs to go so desperately go outside the box. You're in a division with, with Ohio state, Michigan and Penn state and Michigan state. They're all recruiting your backyard. So is Georgia and Alabama. And you go with the guy that you think is going to recruit with those guys. I just, it's a very, very unoriginal, and and I expect it to, to crash and burn in spectacular fashion um, within within a year or two, probably. Just I, nothing about this screams this is going to turn Maryland football around. So to wrap it up with a final thought that is shared by all of us, Maryland should run the option. Uh, and on that note, uh, I think it's a good time to uh, kill this episode after. Oh God! Is it, oh, this is going to be a seventy-nine minute episode, not a sixty-nine minute episode. So sorry about that. Uh, but still, thank you as always for listening. Uh, thanks for subscribing to the podcast. If you do, if you don't, get on there, subscribe on iTunes or whatever your favorite podcasting platform is. Make sure you leave us a review. Uh, make sure you buy some shirts. Make sure you keep reading and supporting the site. Make sure you're following us on all of our social media channels. I'm giving you a lot of homework to do. It's been a while since we've done one of these, and I apologize for that. Again. One last time, thank you for listening to this edition of Roar Lions Radio. For my co-hosts Nick Pollock and Matt DeBear, I'm Bill DeFilippo. Take care, everyone.